whenever I teach on Zoom, everybody gets to see how messy my office is, so I'm glad that uh, I can leave my office and come to a uh, neater, neater place. And uh, those who are, who've been here before, well, uh, welcome back. And those who are new, uh, also welcome to Yushalayim. And uh, I know it was not easy to come here, uh, but you know, member Pirkei Avos says, Lefum Tsara Agra, according to the suffering and the difficulty, is the reward. So the fact that you come now at a time when it's not easy to travel and you have to be in quarantine, Hashem gives extra reward uh, for that type of devotion to learning. And that can translate into a lot of things. I don't know, you know none of us knows the particular reward of God, but it might be a, a good shidduch, it'll be success in learning, children, you know, all sorts of amazing things can happen uh, because a person is most or nefesh, a person really gives up uh, things to come and study Torah. So in a sense, uh, it's even better to be here now than it might be normally, Badafka, uh, because it is, uh, it is difficult um, to come. Uh, during this time. Uh, the world is going through a lot of crazy things, and not just corona. Uh, you know, the United States is in a kind of turmoil with the election difficulties. A lot of religious Jews in particular are a little unhappy about uh, the way the election uh, went. But, you know, uh, Kavish Baruch is in charge of the world one way or the other. So whether it's uh, Trump, Biden, or some mixture of the two, because they say Trump might continue to be like a co-president uh, from the side, uh, it's ultimately a Baruch Hu's will that controls everything, so uh, whatever, he will not abandon uh, the Jewish people uh, one way or the other. Uh, but anyway, as I say, I'm just very, very glad that you're here. Now, this is a, a course uh, in what, I guess, contemporary halacha. Uh, for a number of years, I was the only non-Chabad teacher in my Yenot. I believe I do not have that distinction anymore, but okay. Uh, there are others, uh, they kind of are letting, letting other people in. Uh, so I don't directly teach Hasidus, although I, I have, I, you know, I'm in JLI, I, I do have a very strong kesher uh, to Chabad and to Shluchim, and uh, I talk to many, many Shluchim uh, all the time about uh, different things, so I don't know if you call me a friend of Lubavitch or, or whatever, I'm not sure what the official uh, designation, uh, designation is. And uh, of course, I myself learned tremendous amount of insight from, from the Rebbe's teaching, so in that sense, uh, maybe I'm... I don't know if you, if you call me a chassid or not, I'm not sure, because I'm not sure what the technical definition is. Uh, but this is not a course in chassidus per se, this is a course in, in halacha, but, but it's not halacha of kind of everyday stuff, like I'm not going to do Hilchah Shabbos, although you're welcome to ask me any questions that I can answer, but it's more of what you call contemporary issues. So we do a lot of medical ethics, uh, we do things like... Um, Judaism and the environment, genetic engineering, uh, so that's components. Uh, various other issues as well. We discuss a lot the Aguna crisis of the women. Crisis, Aguna, the word is Aguna. Aguna means a woman that has gotten a civil divorce but has not gotten a religious divorce as to uh, you know, what, what does Halacha say we can do for her, etc. Uh, so those types of issues, kind of what you call contemporary issues. Uh, maybe societal issues and 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 the like. So uh, for uh, for today and for the next few weeks, because these things tend to take more than one week, uh, we're going to do some medical ethics uh, issues, uh, including things like contraception, abortion, stem cell research, cloning, genetic engineering, end of life, organ uh, donation, uh, and and the like. So there's a lot of stuff uh, stuff here. And uh, the most important thing that I look away with is not so much a 
final answer, because very often, in fact, I tell people, if you're taking a final exam in halacha, and uh, you're asked to answer a question, uh, if you say it's a machlokas, you'll, you'll, you'll almost always be right, meaning uh, many, many major issues are almost always going to be a machlokas. Uh, but what's interesting about it is that everything is in the Torah, meaning to say we have to figure out how to apply the Torah that was given thousands of years ago, including the Talmud, to modern situations. And the modern situations are never going to be explicitly, you know, you're not, I'm not going to be able to open up a Gemara and find something about stem cell research or genetic engineering. I'm not going to find a direct reference. But by analogy and by generalization from specific instances, we can formulate guidance as to how to apply the Torah. So the way to understand it is, the Torah is eternal and non-changing, but the life is ever-changing. And uh, what halachic decision-making has to do is, to apply an eternal body of divine law to the ever-changing situations of the human condition. Right? Obviously, no one's going to deny that science and technology is drastically different today than it was even 50 years ago, even 10 years ago. In fact, I think there was a number that uh, scientific knowledge, something like that, doubles every 10 or 15 years or something. It's an amazing thing. that It just kind of doubles and doubles and doubles and, and doubles. So life is ever-changing. But Hashem, who of course sees the future, when he gave the Torah, he, it's an amazing, it's a miraculous thing. He gave the Torah in such a way that from that Torah that was given thousands of years ago and that indeed predated the creation of the world, every possible question can be addressed and answered from the principles of the Torah. But as the Rambam himself writes, it's not explicit. We have to use reasoning by analogy and light. So right, even two great wise people of equal wisdom who start up the same things may differ how to apply them in any of the situations. See, when we're trying to answer, I'm trying to answer a question which I didn't articulate. And the question is, if we say that Hashem gave Moshe not only the written Torah, but Hashem gave Moshe all the oral interpretations of the Torah, then how can there be arguments? I mean, God either said kosher, not kosher, permitted, not permitted. How do you understand that on every page of Gomorrah there's argument? And how do you understand that even today there's constant machlokas? Isn't that a contradiction to the notion that God gave Moshe the Torah? So the answer I'm giving you is, I am giving you an answer to this, that is, when we say God gave Moshe the Torah, we don't mean that God gave Moshe a specific halachic ruling on every situation that will ever occur in the world. That would be impossible. That would have taken Moshe more than 40 days. That would have taken him, uh, whatever it would be, 400 years. Rather, it means Hashem gave Moshe the principles from which all questions can be resolved. But the actual resolution of the question depends on the great rabbis of every generation taking the eternal principles and applying them to new situations. On that, the Rambam says, there can be machlokas. Right? There can be an argument because two people, even with the same principles, may apply them in a different way. This is an important point because a lot of people sometimes, I think, make a mistake out of, out of being religious. And they say, oh, God gave Moshe a specific halachic decision on nuclear war, genetic engineering, surrogate motherhood, uh, cloning. Uh, I'm saying no, Hashem didn't give Moshe an answer to those questions, but Hashem gave Moshe the raw material out of which 
were capable of answering that question. And that is why machloket, machloket means argument, is not a contradiction to revelation. Because revelation still requires the chachamim of every generation to apply those principles to new situations that arise because life is ever-changing. This was even true in the Mishnah and in the Gemara, and it's certainly e equally true today, right? That's why there's machlokas and, uh, and, and the like. Of course, they tell the story, uh, you may have heard um, of the great, great uh, Gaon, Rav Chaim of Brisk, Rav Chaim Salavejik. Uh, now, on one hand, maybe in a Chabad seminary, I shouldn't talk about Chaim, uh, the, the Salavejiks are known as the epitome of misnagdim, right? the epitome of a family that's non-Hasidic. But I have to tell you, Rav Chaim himself was very, very friendly to the Rebbe Rashab. There actually was a very, very good relationship between them. And in fact, when the Rashab, Rav Shalom Ber, started the first Chabad Yeshiva, Tomchei Tamimim, he wanted to get like the best Rosh Hashiva in the world to be the head of Tomchei Tamimim. He offered the position to Rav Chaim of Brisk, who was... Huh? One, one of the Salavejiks were really close to the Rebbe, actually. Uh, yes, yes, yeah. the, the one in New York. The one in New York. They, they went to college together yeah. <laughs> in Berlin. That's correct, that's correct. Uh, so Rav Chaim was the grandfather of, of the one that was close to the Rebbe. Oh. And Rav Chaim was close to the Rebbe Rashab. And uh, Rav Chaim was going to take the position as Rosh Hashiva of Tomchei Tamimim, but the Hasidim torpedoed it. The Hasidim told the Rebbe Rashab, you know, uh, if you have Rav Chaim, it's like having two Rebbes, you know, whatever it would be. So uh, it, didn't, it didn't come to fruition. But Rav Chaim was very, very fond of the Rebbe Rishab and vice versa. So I feel it's mutter for me <laughs> to mention something from Rav Chaim. Uh, that the story goes that the Chafetz Chaim once went to visit Rav Chaim of Brisk. And right before Mincha, a man burst into the show, like a simple man, and just said to Rav Chaim, how come there's so many arguments in Shas? Shas is the Talmud, just like a simple. And Rav Chaim thought for 30 seconds, and Rav Chaim says, you're wrong. For every argument in Shas, it's like a tip of an iceberg. There are like 40 or 50 things in which there's agreement, which is not always articulated. Meaning, the Gemara discusses the you know, contested areas. But for every contested area, for example, uh, the, the first Mishnah in Brachos discusses when is the end of the time for reading Shema? And there's arguments. Is it midnight? Is it the dawn? But that's presupposing there's a mitzvah to read Shema, right? all those things. So the Chavitz Chaim, uh, on the train back to Raden, was sitting in the train for three hours. And after three hours, he said, Rav Chaim is right. Now, to reconstruct that story, when the person asked Rav Chaim, how come there's so much machlokas in Shas? Rav Chaim went through the whole Talmud in three minutes and analyzed that for each machlokas, there's 10 or more areas of agreement. So it took Rav Chaim three minutes. The Chafetz Chaim did that same thing over three hours, and he said at the end, Rav Chaim is right. I said, that shows. So, one, so they both went through the whole Talmud by heart, but one did it in three minutes, and one did it in, in, in three hours. So we shouldn't exaggerate. The, the point I'm making now is that even though there's many, 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 many arguments, many, many arguments, and I understand uh, you, you learn Gemara, right? You've learned, you, you learn, what, what, Tom, what Gemara are you learning? Yeah. Which one? Shomrim. Okay, Shomrim. So, you know, you'll come across many arguments, but, but remember that a person might think everything in Judaism is an argument, not true. 
for every argument, there's a lot of common concepts that are underlaying that, that argument, and therefore there's actually much more that there's agreed upon than there is, uh, dis than, than there is disagreement. But again, as I say, uh, the Talmud tends to highlight areas of disagreement, and, it and the agreements is presupposed. It's kind of background knowledge that you know, or that someone teaches you, but it's not necessarily going to be discussed. That's one of the reasons why Gemara learning is so difficult, because the Gemara assumes, the Gemara is not addressing a person who knows nothing. The Gemara is, besides language, forget about language, even if Aramaic was your native language, you would still have difficulty with Gemara, because Gemara is assuming a lot of background knowledge that the reader has that is not articulated in the text. So a lot of, when we learn Gemara, this is true at all levels, is to try to articulate the background knowledge that the text itself does not even discuss. Sometimes that background is the Chumash, and sometimes it's the Orla, or whatever it is. Okay, so that's kind of a very, very general introduction to the complexities of the halachic process. Uh, so the specific area, as I said, that we're going to be talking about uh, is uh, medical ethics. And let me start off with um, a very simple proposition that surprisingly is more complicated than you might think. Number one, Jews are allowed to be doctors. That better be the case, otherwise a lot of mothers are gonna be very disappointed. Uh, so Jews are allowed to be, well, you know the joke about um, the first Jewish president, uh, he gets elected, and uh, people go to the mother and say, you know, you must be so proud, you know, your, your son is a president of the United States. And the mother says, well, his brother is a doctor, you know, but, uh, you know, my son never went, this one never, never went to medical school, didn't amount to that much. So proposition number one is Jews are allowed to be doctors. Proposition number two is Jews are allowed to go to doctors. Now you might say, what's the big deal about that? Why would I think not that way? Well, you may, you may know that there's a sect of Christians called Christian scientists who actually believe it is immoral. Say again? No, it's not. No, no, Christian scientists are not scientists. Christian scientists is much older than Scientology. Uh, no, Scientology is not Christian at all. I, I don't know what, what God they actually worship, but, but Scientology is not Christianity. But Christian science is regular Christianity, mm -hmm. but they have a certain thing that they don't go to doctors. Why don't they go to doctors? Because this is what they say. They say all sickness comes from God. It's God that made you sick. If it's God that made you sick, what gives you the right to fight what God has put upon you? Okay, we'll talk about the Jewish approach, but all I'm saying is that their approach is that the only way you can alleviate illness is by praying, prayer, repentance, charity, those types of things, but you cannot seek any scientific way to alleviate illness because that's a contravention of the divine will. Now, every year in the United States, there are Christian science parents who are punished by the state because they don't give medical treatment to their minor children. Not because they're abusive. These are not abusive parents. They, they, they believe that religiously they're not allowed to give medical treatment to their children. Now, some Christian scientists, just like you have Reformed Jews, you also have Reformed Christian scientists, meaning sometimes you have a Christian scientist who's not so from, so they'll break down out of compassion and take their child to a doctor, but technically they are breaking their 
their, their, their religion. Judaism rejects that approach, Ladamri. Judaism says, not only are you allowed to seek medical attention, it's a mitzvah, you have to. Now, where do we know that you're allowed? Because it says in Parshas Mishpatim, in the book of Exodus, that if I, if I hurt somebody, if I injure you, so the Torah says, Shifto yitain, I have to pay your lost wages, meaning one of my obligations to you is I have to pay the wages that you lose by not being able to go to work. Virapo yirape, and I must pay your medical expenses. I must pay your medical expenses. So the Talmud in Bavakama says, hmm, if the Torah says, I must pay your medical expenses, that means you're allowed to incur those medical expenses. We see from here, the doctor is allowed to practice healing because otherwise there wouldn't be medical expenses to pay. Why would I think not? So Rashi says, I might have thought like a Christian scientist. I might have thought that only God can heal you. So the Torah says no. The Torah says, of course, Hashem is the source of healing. Nobody denies that. Nobody denies that all healing comes from God. 100%. But HaKadosh Baruch requires that we utilize natural means, just as you have to, uh, generally speaking, go to work or find some income to make a living, even though it's Hashem that gives you Parnassah. But if you're going to stay in bed, you know, the money is not going to come. So health is kind of a similar idea. It's Hashem that gives you health. What about your emotional well, well, the, 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 the same thing is true there. I mean, that, that's a whole uh, very important discussion. Uh, we recognize absolutely the role of mental health and the treatment of mental health. And uh, the same way the Torah would say you go to a doctor for something physical, uh, the Torah would say you go to the therapist or the social worker or whatever it is uh, to deal with your emotional health. Uh, absolutely. Now, emotional health is a little more complicated, not because it's less of an important, extremely important need, but a lot of therapeutic modalities might be against against religion, and that's a very. I mean, that's maybe we'll talk about that later. That's a very very difficult issue. For example, let's assume. I mean, I'll just give you an example of a type of problem. Let's assume that a person suffers from anxiety, or OCD, obsessive compulsive disorders. And they happen to be religious where they can't do this on Shabbos and they can't do this on Shabbos. Now, a therapist might very well say that the way you have to get over this is, you know, stop keeping Shabbos and the like. Now, I'm actually not saying that that's wrong. Sometimes it's, it's such a matter of life and death that that might be appropriate. But all I'm saying is it's a very, very difficult halakhic issue, meaning if I'm an Orthodox Jew and my therapist is recommending that I eat tray for I violate Shabbos, you know, I would have to discuss it with a with rabbi in terms of how serious it is and the like. So mental health is extremely important, but, but it does involve certain complications that a doctor treating my leg, you know, isn't the same type of, is not the same type of problem. So the concept here is this. The concept is that, of course, Hashem is the source of your refuah, but Hashem requires well, well, actually, I didn't tell you required yet. Hashem permits us to go to the doctor. Now, now, does that make it a mitzvah yet? Not necessarily. That just says you're allowed to go to the doctor. But then we have another mitzvah. There's a mitzvah in the Torah. And the mitzvah in the Torah says, You must guard your soul, which is understood to mean 
you must guard your soul that it remains in your healthy body, and therefore we are obligated to safeguard our health. Some people say that that's why you have to wear a mask or do social distancing, uh, be both, be I'll get in a second. both because of my responsibility to other people and, and to myself that I, I shouldn't get, uh, I should not get, uh, get sick, as the Rambam writes, even though, now the Rambam has an interesting passage here. The Rambam, as you know, himself was a doctor. He was a very, very, besides the great, great authority of Jewish law, the Rambam had a triple career. It's very amazing. He was a great, great, great philosopher in the Guide to the Perplexed. He was the greatest halachic authority of the age. And he was one of the greatest physicians of the age. He had like three careers at once. And the Rambam writes how important health is. In fact, there's even a diet book based on the Rambam's dietary recommendations. Somebody updated. I don't know if you, you can actually get a book that says uh, diets according to the Rambam or, 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 or whatever, whatever it is. But the Rambam writes an interesting passage. He says it's very important that we take care of our health. But he writes, health is not an end. It's a means to an end. Meaning the Rambam says a person who glorifies his health is no better than a glutton who glorifies his food. So a glutton glorifies food, and somebody else might glorify health. I, I jog, you know, 20 miles a day, whatever it is. The, great, the, the importance of health is not because it's an end, but because it's a means that when I have a healthy body, I can concentrate better, I can do mitzvot, I can serve Hashem, I can do more good in the world. So yeah, health, exercise, in fact, the Rambam makes the point that it's not just going to a doctor when you're sick. The Rambam makes the point of the very great importance of preventative medicine, the idea of exercising and eating properly so you don't get sick. That's even more important. Uh, the old English saying, an ounce of prevention is, is worth a pound of cure. And again, I, uh, I, you know, I, I plead guilty, obviously, uh, I and uh, other, other rabbis as well, uh, we're sometimes negligent in this area, and it's something that uh, you know, we should work on, I try to work on, and the like, uh, but it is an important thing. The fact that we're not always the best role models <laughs> does not mean that it's not important. Uh, it's similar to smoking. I, I happen not to smoke, but sometimes you have a great rabbi who smokes, and he'll tell his students, don't smoke under any circumstances. And they say, what about you? He says, okay, I have a failing. Uh, so the Rambam does make the point about preventative medicine, exercise, and nutrition. Uh, it also applies to not doing dangerous things. It's very interesting. What about bungee jumping? What about, uh, some people like to do high-risk activities. So according to halacha, there's some problem with that. You're not supposed to put your life in danger. Uh, smoking is a problem and, and, and the like. So, so we have two things. We have the permission to go to the doctor, which is based on Exodus. We have the mitzvah, v'nishmarte ma'od, the Did you want to say? Yeah. Um, so you said if you hurt somebody else, okay, lost weight is impossible. Yep, that's so correct. Could somebody be like, I have PTSD because of something you did, so you have to pay for my therapy? Uh, yes, as a matter of fact, I, I think that, well, um, okay, I have to be a little careful there because the halachas here are a bit technical, meaning to say the halachic chiv obligation to pay for medical expenses and lost wages is only if there was physical injury. It's a very physical idea, meaning to say, if the injury I caused you was emotional distress, but I did not you know, break your arm or whatever it would be, so it's not so clear what the obligation would be there. So uh, I would have to say 
that halacha would not automatically create an obligation for PTSD therapy unless it occurred in the course of a physical injury. So if, for example, I threw a grenade into the room, and, you know, even if it was a minor injury, even if you only like broke a finger, that would be enough to piggyback all of the medical expenses. On the other hand, in the absence of that physical injury, emotional distress itself might not uh, create the obligation. Why that's so, again, I, I don't know if I fully understand it, but that seems to be the technicality of the halachic rule. Yeah. Um, you know how you said like, you have to prevent sickness and stuff, so yeah. what about like, indulging in food and like, being a bit gluttonous? Like... Again, you know, the Rambam writes, and this is so amazing, because the Rambam wrote this in the, in the 1200s. This is, you know, 800 years ago. He said that overeating, he says, is the cause for a majority of illnesses. That's what he said. That's what he said. Uh, and now the truth of the matter is, for most of Jewish history, it's so interesting, overeating was not a major problem because people just, we don't realize this. The notion that you can eat whenever you want is a relatively new idea. You know, in, in Europe, it wasn't that you can open the, first of all, it wasn't the refrigerator, but it's not like you, you open the cabinet and it was full of food. That was not the case. Like, Today we have a unique uh, Nisayim. Yeah. I was going to say, like, on Purim, it's a mitzvah to, like, have a feast and indulge. No, no, well, listen, I, I assure you, if you only ate a big uh, feast once a year, no, nothing would happen to you. you know, I mean, certainly, the way the Torah is structured, on happy occasions, you feast, you eat, even then, you don't have to stop yourself, but, you know, you eat. But the concept is the rest of the year, you, you, you know, you're much, much more moderation. So if you lived by that cycle, that wouldn't be so bad. That really wouldn't be so bad. Uh, the problem is that we turn every day into Purim, and then Purim becomes, you know, quadruple Purim. You know, so then you have all sorts of problems. I mean, heart disease, diabetes. Again, I'm not going to give you a whole health lecture, but uh, all of these things are very much connected to to, to diet. And uh, the, the important point is that our great rabbis recognized that more than 800 years ago. So again, you may want to look at. Uh, now, it's interesting, we, we don't follow all of the Rambam's medical advice. It's interesting that the, the, the post can say that when the Rambam was giving specific medical advice, he was not speaking as a rabbi, he was speaking as a doctor. You know, medical science can, can change specific recommendations. But the overall general philosophical approach to health is something that the Rambam Mamish understood all the way back, all the way back uh, then. Okay, so it's important to know a very important idea to take care of ourselves. And of course, that's because, again, I want, but I, the other point is also very important, not because health itself is the big deal. Health is like any other good in society. A person might say, I like to eat. <laughs> I feel better than, when I eat than when I, when I uh, you know, exercise. But it's not because of, it makes you feel good, although it can but it's because it enables you to serve Hashem in a better way. Everything is based on serving, uh, serving Hashem. Now, the, all of this is mitzad the patient, meaning the patient has a mitzvah to seek medical treatment, to take care of his health and the like. Now, one side comment I want to talk about here is, and that is, the Torah does not enshrine any particular medical treatment as better than another. For example, now you know we have what's called Western medicine, which is regular medicine. 
And then we have a lot of Eastern medicine, which comes from China or India, uh, such as acupuncture. Uh, and then you have things like hypnosis even, which is not necessarily Eastern by origin, uh, chakras. Now, halacha does not say one type of medicine is better than the other type of medicine. Halacha is very pragmatic. Halacha basically says, if it works, it works. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. So you are mechuya, mechuya means obligated, you are obligated to look for the therapies that have a record of efficacy. So that would mean, uh, again, as I say, that doesn't mean Western medicine is better, but that does mean that you can't just take every little thing that's offered and assume that that's going to be good. And that's why most responsible doctors, even those who practice Eastern medicine, will often combine what you call conventional medicine with, uh, with other things uh, that you do as well. Uh, the only problem with, not the only question with Eastern medicines is this, and this is true with a lot of Eastern things, yoga, meditation, and that is a lot of them historically were rooted in Buddhism or Hinduism, and Buddhism and Hinduism are generally treated as idolatry, a bodhisattva. So the question becomes, can I do meditation? Can I do yoga? Uh, if yoga had its origin in Buddhist or Hindu practices or acupuncture or chakras or uh, all types of alternative medicines. So this is a, an interesting question, but most opinions actually say that you can separate a technique from its original source, that even if originally yoga was connected to the worship of gods, which would be idolatry, but now it can be separated and now it becomes a relaxation technique or an exercise technique, and therefore it's no longer connected to the avodhisara, and the same thing with a lot of uh, medical techniques. So in a sense it becomes koshered by simply separating it from the idolatrous uh, ritual. Uh, others say no, others are machmer. Now I know that the Rebbe himself uh, was in favor of uh, meditation. Uh, he thought meditation was, could be neutral, so to speak, a way to relax a person, a way to calm a person down. And the fact that it had, may have had its origin in, uh, in Buddhist stuff didn't make a difference because it can become a neutral uh, mechanism. Um, I could find a few. I, I, I mean, this is a, it's a very well-known. Uh, uh, no, I just want to know if it was yeah. like the rebbe was like into meditation itself. Oh, was he himself? Like, I, I don't know if the rebbe. Well, no, I'm saying not into <laughs> yeah. himself. I'm saying yeah. he per, he, he suggested it or encouraged oh, he specifically, it for yeah. others. Oh, for yes, yes, he, speci he specifically. Like, yeah, it was specifically under like his spinera. No, no, he, he he made an interesting. Actually, he made a very interesting point, which is a little little controversial. There are people who try to bring meditation and they try to make it a religious exercise. Because they, they do meditation, they combine it with the Shema, and they use it as part of their davening and part of their spiritual exercises. And you know, many people do that. The Rebbe was against it, it's very interesting. The Rebbe didn't want meditation to become part of your religious life. He wanted it to be separated as a relaxation technique. So it's not like Right, right, right. So, now that was an interesting approach because most of the rabbis or most of the religious Jews 
who endorse meditation generally combine it with, with Torah. And again, intuitively, we would have thought that. Intuitively, I would have thought, let's you know, bring it into Judaism. He says, no, he didn't want to bring it into Judaism, but he, did say but he wanted it to be a new Hashem. What? I didn't hear you. Say again, I didn't hear you. But he did, was very strong into contemplating the greatness of Hashem. Oh, of course. No, no, well, okay. You know, you have to understand. Obviously, obviously, all Hasidus is very big on, I mean, there's meditation with small M and meditation with big M. In other words, obviously, Hasidus is about contemplating Hashem, thinking about Hashem. That type of meditation is, 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 is Judaism. Uh, that, for sure, you're doing. But he's talking about, you know, the mantras and the, the, the different types of relaxation techniques, the breathing a certain way. He felt that that should be a separate thing from religion. That should just be, that's, that's what I mean by meditation. I mean the technical aspects of, of meditation. So many say yoga is the same thing. You know, uh, people ask, you know, can I do yoga? Uh, okay, obviously, you know, with mixed groups, you have issues of tzniyas. Those are, those are peripheral problems, but... but uh, the general idea would be, yeah. Now, I would advise you, if you're doing yoga, not to have an Eastern instructor. Try to get a, an instructor that's uh, a religious Jew. That would be the best thing. Because the Eastern instructor you know, might be bringing in religious things that are idolatry and the like. But if you have an instructor that's not connected to, to Avodah Zohar religion, we believe things can be kosher. The only thing I heard that you can't really work, it's, it's an amazing thing, that you cannot kosher how do you pronounce it? Feng Shui? Is that how you pronounce it? That's the Chinese thing. F-E-N-G? Feng Shui. Feng Shui? That's where you arrange furniture. I don't know. You arrange yeah. stuff and it's supposed to give you good vibes. Mm -hmm. So that, they say, is non-casurable because that's totally based on spirits wow. and good spirits and bad spirits and that's uh, idolatry. So that, they say, a, a religious Jew cannot, so cannot do. Huh? Well, because they're because essentially you're like praying to the spirits. You're wanting the spirits to uh, help you. When you pray to spirits other than God, that's that's considered idolatry, right? You don't pray to. Yeah, other... but we do believe in like bad forces and good forces. Yeah, we do, we do. But we believe that uh, it's only Hashem that uh, can can help us to overcome them. We don't. Okay, so we don't pray to the spirits. What you never about like wearing a uh, well, uh, there are questions about it. There are questions about it. I mean, you have to understand what you're doing. I mean, uh, there, there have crept into Judaism in different groups certain practices that, that are, that are uh, quasi-idolatrous, meaning not everything that people are doing around there are necessarily kosher. You know? uh, the Hamza, for example, uh, I'm not giving you a definitive answer, but that was largely borrowed from Arabic, uh, Arabic culture. So, uh, you know. So some of it uh, is not is not necessarily so good. But what would it be the yeah. most superstition today that exists in most societies is not necessarily our own. It all a lot of it can be sourced to whatever communities. That's correct. That's correct. Which means which means it's not uh, authentically Jewish. We pick up. I mean, Jews have. Pick, I mean, again, uh, <laughs> Jews do pick up things from other societies, which are not always Torah ideas. And uh, it's better to not necessarily connect to those things as much. You know, it's a complicated issue. It is a complicated issue. But uh, I'm not here to tell you what's forbidden. I'm here to tell you what's permitted. Meaning, I'm here to to say that things like yoga and Eastern medicine is by and large going to be okay, because we do believe you can sever a technique from its origin. That's a very important idea. Something may may have had its origin in idolatry. By the way, there's also a teaching, I don't know if you learned this in your Chumash classes, that 
Uh, remember Avram, after Sarah died, Avram took a, another wife, Keturah, who actually, Chazal say, was Hagar, reincarnated. And he had children from Keturah. And what does it say? He sent them to the east, and he gave them gifts. Do you remember that, the verse? Oh, yeah. So according to one interpretation, he gave them the gift of the eastern wisdoms, and he sent them to China, India. He sent them to Asia. And therefore, the cornerstone of these eastern wisdoms, not the idolatry, but the cornerstone of the eastern wisdoms, actually come from Avram. So not only, so Jews claim everything. So not only is Judaism the source of Christianity and Islam, which it certainly is, but Judaism is even the source of the Eastern religions as well. Everything comes from, from Avram, right? So we like to claim, we like to claim everything. Okay, all right, now, so, so far we've said you're allowed to go to the doctor, and number two, there's a, a mitzvah to take care of your health. Let me mention on the other side of the equation, that the doctor or the nurse or the therapist who helps people is also doing a mitzvah. And there are two mitzvahs that they're doing when they're helping you. One is a positive commandment and one is a negative commandment. The negative commandment is in Vayikra Perek Yutes. And that commandment says, Lo ta'amot al dam re'acha. That's a very famous pasuk. Do not stand by idly over your friend's blood. That's very important. You see somebody suffering, you have an obligation to try to alleviate their suffering in any way that you can. This is a very unique aspect of Jewish ethics. Uh, you know, when I taught law school, I taught law school for many years, and uh, when law students uh, come, uh, they're still, you know, they come from college, they're very idealistic, and they, they want to, uh, they fight for justice, so we try to show them that the legal system is not always a just system. The example would be this. Consider this example. Let's say a four-year-old fell off a bridge and is drowning in the water. And you are a gold medal Olympic swimmer. You have four gold medals from swimming. And you're walking to a banquet to honor you. And you could very easily jump into the water and save the kid, but you don't want to get your tuxedo or your dress, whatever you're wearing, uh, wet. So you simply don't walk, you simply walk by, the kid drowns. What should be done to such a wretched person who could have saved a four-year-old child with no inconvenience? So people say, oh, you ought to go to jail, or you ought to take away his gold medals, we ought to fine him. Do you know that no, legally he has no responsibility at all? Legally, there is no obligation to intervene and rescue somebody. You can't push somebody in the water, you know, then you'll be liable. But if I simply don't save somebody, I have no obligation. I have no obligation at all. Uh, because under the secular system of ethics, I have an obligation not to hurt people, but I don't have an obligation to help them if I can. In fact, not only that, but if you actually tried to help, and God forbid something went wrong, you could be in a lot of trouble. I remember years ago reading uh, an editorial that somebody wrote, a medical student who was an intern. He had just graduated medical school. And he was saying he was so proud of himself. He was driving to the hospital for one of his shifts, and there was an accident, and there was a, uh, there was a victim, and he left the car. The doctor left the car, and he gave mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation until the ambulance came. And he was so proud of himself because he finally felt like a real doctor because he saved a life. So he gets to the hospital, 
He tells the attending physician what he did, and the attending physician looks at him and says, are you crazy? You stopped? Do you know what would have happened if the guy would have died or something? You could be sued, the hospital could be sued. Meaning, the secular law creates a system where it's sometimes better not to intervene. Judaism rejects that. Judaism says in this famous verse, do not stand by idly over your friend's blood. You are not just obligated not to hurt people. That's for sure. You have an affirmative obligation to help people in any way you can. Financial, physical, medical, whatever it is. Now obviously, what your obligation is depends on your skills. Uh, meaning, I wouldn't be obligated to stop and give somebody emergency brain surgery. And I think probably nobody in this room, unless somebody here is a doctor, uh, would do the same. We don't know how to do it. If we did, it would be much worse. But whatever we're able to do, we have an obligation to do. It's a very important idea of responsibility. Your responsibility is not just don't hurt other people. Your responsibility is to help people when you can. So a doctor, and it's, not, and it's not only a doctor, a doctor, a nurse, a therapist, is fulfilling a great mitzvah of not standing by idly when somebody is suffering, whether it's physical or mental or emotional. By the way, as an aside, it's not our topic. Uh, this is also a key to a lot of laws regarding Lush and Hara that one needs to investigate. Right? Everyone knows there's a prohibition in the Torah against saying negative things about people, even if it's true. And right? I'm not supposed to say something negative about you, even if it's true, that's called Lush and Hara. Right? I shouldn't say, oh, do you know what you got on that paper, or whatever it is. Now, the Chavitz Chaim, who wrote the great book on the laws of Lashon Hara, makes the point that sometimes you have to say Lashon Hara. Have to, not may, have to, if it's necessary to protect a person from being harmed. And a, a very common example would be Shiduch. Let's say that uh, a young woman is going out with a guy, and you happen to know that this guy is an abuser. This guy slaps women. Now, I could be at Sadiq and say, well, you're not allowed to say that because that's Lashon Hara, that's a negative thing. But no, uh, the woman has to know this information because otherwise she might get into a marriage that could be very, very destructive for her. So this is an important thing to know, that even though there is a law called Lashon Hara, and that's a very severe law, that's a very strict law, but, you, but when it's necessary to protect innocent people from being harmed, not only are you allowed to say Lashon Hara, but there is a mitzvah, an obligation to say Lashon Hara, or a business partnership. Let's say that somebody's going to go into a business partnership with somebody, and I know this guy is dishonest, or I know this guy is incompetent, Right? So the halacha, now again, I can't exaggerate. I, I can't exaggerate. I have to know, and I can't go more than I know, but I could say this is what I know, and you have to be careful. Right? You understand that? And all of that is based on low, the same pasuk. The same pasuk that says the Olympic swimmer <coughs> has to rescue the four-year-old will also say that I got to tell the woman about uh, the, uh, the abusive behavior of the guy, and I have to tell the businessman about uh, the incompetent or dishonest behavior of his partner. An interesting question, again, this is not our topic, 
is, is there a statute of limitations on bad behavior? Let's assume that I know that this person hit a woman 25 years ago and hasn't repeated it since. Now, is there a point where this person has uh, had a psychiatric breakdown years ago, but there's been no reoccurrence? At some point, does something become so unlikely to repeat itself that we can forget about it? And once you can forget about it, then you have to forget about it. Then it turns into Lashon Hara again. Or no, you know, I mean, the abuse community tends to take the position, or the advocates of, 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 you know, of anti-abuse tend to say once an abuser, always an abuser. You know, it depends on the situation. I'm not giving you a definitive answer to that. But it is an issue that comes up a lot with Shidduchim. In fact, rabbis deal with this all the time, not always so well. That is, you know, we often, you know, people say, do I have to say that I'm on uh, psychiatric medications? Well, if you're presently on psychiatric medications, the answer is you do. If you were years ago and there's been no reoccurrence, then maybe not, right? So, so it all depends on those types of situations, yeah. Um, when you have to speak up, like, Avoid someone else's comment. Is that if you're asked directly or if, like, you have to comment often? Yeah, so that's an interesting, that's an interesting question. If you're asked directly, for sure. Right. But the truth of the matter is, uh, if, it's, if it's a very serious detriment to that person, you may have an obligation to volunteer the information, even if nobody's even asking you, you see? Because you have a duty to prevent, to help people. Now again, you're not telling a person not to get engaged. You're just giving them the information so they can make a decision. Sometimes people might decide that even with this problem, you know, oh, it's okay, you know, whether they're right or wrong. But they need to have the information. This is very important. And this applies both if you know something about the man or you know something about the woman. It makes no difference. Uh, either, either way, there could be serious, uh, serious uh, problems. Uh, but by the way, again, uh, this is not a, the class is not about Shidduchim, but I, do, I, I just want you to be sure you understand this. The issue of revealing something negative is only if it is something that is likely to become a future problem, meaning if it's past and it's past, then you know, keep your mouth shut. But if it's something in the past that may continue to be or become a problem in the future, that's when you have to reveal it. Okay, you understand the difference? If it's simply a past event, for example, somebody's sexual history. I have absolutely no responsibility, and you have no responsibility. If I, if I know something about the sexual history of a person, that they were with a lot of people or whatever it is, but now, but now they're religious, now they're loyal, now they're, you know, now they're going to be, uh, they're, not, they're never going to do this again. Unless there's an issue of disease, you know, but that's, no, but let, let's factor that out for a moment, like age or something. Unless there's an issue of disease, the fact that somebody has a history is not a relevant consideration. Uh, but if somebody, for example, is continuing to do immoral things, that, that is an issue because that impacts on the marriage. So everything about this disclosure is future-oriented. It is not past-oriented. Okay, the past itself is not relevant except as it impacts on the capacity to uh, have a relationship in the future. By the way, again, forgive me for, dig for digressing. I often, when I think of something that might be useful to you, I want to tell you, and let me just mention something again, totally not relative, uh, relevant, but it's uh, something, since, since, since I talked about Shidduchim, which is already off topic, let me go a little off topic to that off topic. And that is, um, a woman can go out with a Kohen 
even if she's not a virgin. This is for some reason a common mistake. Uh, a woman cannot marry a Kohen if she has had relations with a non-Jew or she's divorced. But if a woman has had relations with a Jewish man, that does not disqualify her for, for, uh, from a Kohen. So it just needs, how's that again? So you didn't hear you. Oh, okay, so let me mention, let me mention that. Okay, okay. A, okay. A, 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 a woman who converted to Judaism cannot marry a Kohen. That, that's a given. A convert cannot marry a Kohen. A woman that received a Jewish divorce cannot marry a Kohen. And a woman that had relations with a non-Jew right, cannot marry a Oh, a Kohen Gadol is different. A Kohen Gadol can only marry a virgin. So for some reason, people are confusing. There's no Kohen Gadol today. Until right. the temple, there's no Kohen Gadol. So uh, the laws of Kohen Gadol do not apply to a regular uh, Kohen. Okay? So that's something. And again, the only reason I bring it up is because um, for some reason, uh, there seems there's a lot of confusion. A lot of times... Uh, women are assuming uh, that if they're not uh, virgin, they cannot uh, go with the Kohen. That, that's not true. Okay. okay. Besides, okay. Back to, uh, okay. so back to, uh, how did I get onto this? I got onto this because I mentioned the verse in Leviticus, Lo do not stand by idly over your friend's blood. And that is the mitzvah that doctors and nurses and therapists perform when they render medical or psychiatric or mental health assistance to people who are in need. Now, there's another mitzvah they fulfill that's a little odd. They fulfill the mitzvah, these are the doctors, nurses, therapists, they fulfill the mitzvah of Hashavat Aveda. What is Hashavat Aveda? The mitzvah to return a lost object. Right, if I find uh, a wallet, there's a mitzvah on me to try to return it. If there's identification, or I hold it, I put up a sign. Now, the Gemara says in Sanhedrin the following. It makes what's called a kalvachomer. Kalvachomer is called a fortiori reasoning. And the kalvachomer says, if there's a mitzvah to return your cow or your wallet, how much more so should there be a mitzvah to return your health? Right, if a person's health or life is threatened and I try to restore their health or their life, I am giving them back an object that would otherwise be lost. And the object that would be lost is much more important than money or something like that. So this is called a kalvachomer. So via the reasoning of kalvachomer, anytime I render medical assistance or therapy, and again, it's not only the doctor, this includes the nurse, this includes the whole team. I am fulfilling the mitzvah of Hashavas Aveda. So that's a positive mitzvah. There's a positive mitzvah, Hashavas Aveda. There's a negative mitzvah, Lo Ta'amot Haldam Reyach. So now let's set up the different verses that we have. The permissibility to go to the doctor is based on the verse in Exodus that says that if I injure you, I gotta pay your medical expenses, so from here we see you're allowed to go to the doctor. The obligation to go to the doctor is based on the positive commandment, this is in Parshas Vyaschanan, in the book of Devorim, you should guard your soul, which is understood to mean protect your health, 
both prophylactically, meaning preventive uh, health, uh, diet, exercise, not doing dangerous things, as well as after the fact, if you are sick, seeking the appropriate medical treatment. But here, as I indicated, the Torah is agnostic, meaning the Torah is indifferent, whether it's Eastern, Western, as long as it's therapeutically efficacious. On the part of the doctor and the nurse and the therapist, their mitzvot are lotamot aldam reyacha, do not stand by idly over your friend's blood, and the mitzvah hashavah saveda of returning a lost object. So we see that uh, doctors and health, the healthcare team are doing mitzvahs when they provide healthcare. In fact, there's even a shayla. How are they allowed to charge? It's an interesting question. Uh, because normally, you're not supposed to charge money for doing a mitzvah. Now, of course, you'll ask the obvious question. So how can rabbis get paid by synagogues? And how can cantors get paid by synagogues? And how can teachers of Torah get paid? They're doing mitzvahs, and you're not supposed to charge money for doing mitzvahs. Well, suffice it to say that the rabbis uh, figured out <laughs> how this could be. And uh, the basic rationale is this. It's a very interesting idea that technically any salary for doing a mitzvah is not a salary for what you're doing, but it's a salary for the opportunity that you're giving up that you could have done something else. So, for example, uh, a rabbi who teaches Torah is not supposed to get paid for teaching Torah. But on the other hand, you know, if he needs to make a living, instead of teaching Torah, he could drive a truck or he could work in an office or he, if he's trained, he could be a lawyer or a doctor. So he's not making money that he could have made from that other profession when he's doing this. So we're not paying, paying him for what he's doing. We're paying him for what he could have been doing had he not been doing this. This is called, this is a, there's a technical term for this. This is called Sechar Batala. Now, there's a lot of kashas on this. First of all, number one, some rabbis may not be capable of doing anything else. Right? So there isn't an alternative job they could do. Although you, but number two, I think a more serious problem is, how does that work for Shabbos? I understand, let's say now. Now, I could get paid, to the degree I get paid, but I could get paid for doing this because I could decide to do something else now. But let's say it's Shabbos. I'm a rabbi on Shabbos. Now on Shabbos, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not allowed to do some other job for which I get paid. So the interesting question is, I'm going to leave this as a question. How does the concept of compensation for what you're not doing, how does that work when you pay somebody for a Shabbos job? Okay, that's a good question. But at least during the week, that's how it works. So with doctors, it's actually the same thing. You don't think of it this way. A doctor who practices medicine is doing a mitzvah just like a rabbi that's teaching Torah. So there actually is a question in halacha. How are doctors allowed to charge? And the answer, once again, is that a doctor is fundamentally charging for not doing the alternative job that they could have done. It's interesting that that's called schar, schar batala, because they are doing mitzvahs. Okay. All right, so uh, that's kind of the general background regarding a medical treatment. Now, philosophically, what's going on is this. Philosophically, uh, this goes into the area that's called hishtadlus. What does hishtadlus mean? 
that even though Hashem is the source of all blessing, we are obligated to utilize naturalistic means to get the divine blessing. This goes back to the very curse that Adam, that Hashem rather gave Adam a Rishon when Adam and Chava ate from the Garden of Eden. By the sweat of your brow, you have to eat bread. Meaning, Hashem gives you your parnasah, but it has to come through working, through earning. Health is the same idea. Hashem is the rofei cholim, is the healer of the sick, but you have to take the normal steps that you take in order to preserve. Meaning, we don't believe that emuna and Hashem is quiescent. Quiescent is passive. We don't believe that it's passive. We believe that it requires that we take initiative in many, many ways. Um, okay, so that's the philosophy here, that medical treatment and preventive health are, you know, uh, is all connected to the idea of fishtadlus that you have to seek out in natural ways in order to receive HaKadosh Baruch Hu's bracha. So now let me share with you a text that seems to go the other way, the opposite direction. And that is, this is a Mishnah at the end of Maseches Kedushin. And, uh, I mean, Tractate Kedushin is about marriage, so most of the Tractate is about marriage. But at the end, it goes into different digressions, as Mishnayas often do. There's often, the Talmud often goes from one thing to another thing. And it discusses at the end of the Tractate various professions that are good and various professions that are bad. So it mentions most sailors are God-fearing people. Why is that? Because they're exposed to constant danger. They're always in storms. You know, the ships are on the verge of, of, of uh, sinking. And they pray to Hashem. Okay, so most sailors, again, they may not apply today, but most sailors are pious people. Okay. But then it says, Tov Shebarofim, the best of the doctors, the Gehenim, will go to hell. Even the best of the doctors go to hell. So there seems to be a condemnation of doctors. Again, with apologies to anyone who uh, has family members that are doctors, the best of the doctors go to hell. Now how can that be? If going to a doctor is a mitzvah and being a doctor is a mitzvah, and we have great, great rabbis that were doctors, both Maimonides, of course, and Nachmanides was also a doctor, as well as Rabbeinu Nisam, the Ran. So how could it be that the best of the doctors go to Gehenna? So let me give you two explanations, two commentaries about this. Commentary number one is that of the Teferes Yisrael, one of the great commentaries on the Mishnah. And he says, Tov Shebarofim means a doctor who thinks he's so good that he never bothers to consult with colleagues regarding the treatment of a patient. Meaning, I know I'm the expert, I'm the best one. Now as a result, if I'm not willing to admit my mistakes, and if I'm not willing to consult with others, and the patient suffers, Hashem holds me accountable because of my arrogance and because of my gaiva for everything that the patient suffers. And that's what it means, the best of the doctors go to Gehenna. That means the doctor who fancies himself as such an expert that he doesn't bother to consult with others and the patient suffers, that doctor goes to Gehenna. So it's not a condemnation of doctors. 
it's a condemnation of the attitude that I know everything and I'm not going to listen to whatever anybody else says. That's shot number one. I think it's a very good shot because a doctor that's so arrogant that he'll never admit his mistake, patients are going to suffer and there'll be patients who are going to die. Right? A doctor has to be willing to admit he made a mistake and take the corrective action that needs to be taken. Now, a second pshat is more of a Hasidish explanation. And that is, the word tov, the best of the doctors, tov, what is the gematria, right? You know, you know gematria, right? Every letter of the aleph base has a num numerical equivalent. So tov is tes, which is nine, and vav is six, so it's 15, and bez is 17. Now we know that the daily prayer that we pray every day is the Amida is technically called Shemona Esrei. Now, that is a misnomer because how many blessings? Shemona Esrei means 18. How many blessings in the Amida? 19. So a little quiz. How come we call it Shemona Esrei, which is 18, if in point of fact it has 19? Anyone know, know the answer to that? Anyone remember the answer or heard the answer? Yeah. Okay, had a class about it? Okay. Well, basically, you know, originally it was 18. And at the time, uh, after the destruction of the temple, they added the blessing against the heretics and against the informers and against the missionaries. Usually this was during the decades of early Christianity because they were undermining faith in the Torah. So that was the 19th blessing that was added. So although we still commonly call it Shemona Esrei, uh, it's really a misnomer. Uh, Amida is the is the more proper term, but you know, you can, if you, in fact, it's the best thing. And on Shabbos, it's even crazy. Talk about the Shabbos Shemona Esrei, because on Shabbos it's seven blessings. It's not even not even close. But be it, whether it's seven or nineteen, it's never eighteen, even though we call it Shemona Esrei. But be it as it may, we still call it Shemona Esrei. So listen to it, the pshat. Tov is seventeen. So it means the doctor who believes in seventeen of the eighteen blessings but he doesn't believe in the blessing that Hashem is the source of healing. He attributes it to himself. So Tov Shebarofim, the Rofe, who only believes in 17 and not in Rifo'enu Hashem v'nei Rofe, that's the one that goes to Gehenna. But Lehepach, if a doctor believes in all 18, what's the word? That's the gematria of 18. Chai. Chai is 18. He becomes a source of life. He becomes a conduit of healing. He becomes a shaliach of Hashem. And he has great, great reward. And let me point out that even if a patient dies under the care of a doctor, God does not hold the doctor responsible if the doctor did everything that he could. Right? If, if a person is a surgeon and he operates on somebody, who needs this operation. And things in surgery can sometimes go wrong. Every surgery is dangerous. Actually, even, even routine surgery has a certain, uh, tonsils or whatever it is, has a certain sakana. As long as he was not negligent, as long as he was not careless, as long as he did what he was supposed to do, in Shamayim, he is not accountable for taking that life because he was trying to save that person even if, God forbid, something bad happened, right? There's no guarantee in, in, in medicine. 
I'm sorry, you had a hand, somebody had a hand up? Uh, did, okay, okay. okay. All right. Okay? Uh, so those are two explanations of Tov, Shabrook, and Hem. So, so, so again, the point, the, the common denominator of both of these explanations is that it's not a criticism of doctors. It's a criticism of a certain attitudes that doctors would have, but if they don't have those attitudes, then lahepach, what they're doing is, is very, very important and very, very significant. Um, particularly in Yerushalayim, you can actually find a number of doctors who are very, very big rabbis as well. It's interesting that they're you know, post him and you know, they're actually active, active doctors who are, you know, I don't know how they, how they do both. It's very, very difficult, but they have full-time medical practices and they're also very, very learned in Torah and you know, very capable of paskening difficult uh, shilas, both in medical halacha and in other areas of halacha as, as well. Uh, let me just tell you a story, uh, though, that uh, kind of gives you a certain humorous vein. There was, in the 19th century, a rabbi, Rav Eisel Acharif. Rav Eisel Acharif literally means Rav Eisel the Sharp One, and you'll see why he was given the name Sharp One, because he was known for his sharp wit. He was a very brilliant uh, Talmud Chacham. And the story goes that he was very, very sick. And the doctor told his family, the rabbi is going to die tonight. I'm not going to, I'm going home. There's no use in my being here. He's going to die. And the doctor just left the house. Well, lo and behold, a miracle happened. And the rabbi got better. And three weeks later, the rabbi is walking in the street. And he bumps into the doctor. And the doctor turns white as if he saw a ghost. And the doctor blurts out in a very insensitive way, I thought you were dead. And Rav Eisel says, I did die. And I went to heaven. And I did you a great, great favor. What's the favor? I got to heaven. And I saw a door in heaven. And I saw a long line of people. And you were in the line. And I asked the angel, what is this door? And the angel said, oh, this is the door to hell, Gehenna, and all these people are doctors, and the doctors go to Gehenna. That's what the Mishnah says. And you were in the line. So Rav Eisel said, but I told the angel, let this man go. He's no doctor. Therefore, mm -hmm. the, he's not going to go to hell because he's no doctor. You're not a doctor because a doctor cannot give up hope. A doctor can say, there's nothing more medicine can do for you. But a doctor can never kind of tell a person, you're going to die. The doctor can say, you know, turn to God and pray for mercy. And this actually raises an interesting question. Again, I'm getting ahead of myself, but, but it, it does come up. And that is, uh, both, this is both a medical question in terms of a doctor and a family question. Let's assume a doctor, family, were given the prognosis that this person in all likelihood is going to die in a relatively short time. What is the attitude towards what we tell the person? Do we tell the person that? Do we still pretend, so to speak, everybody's happy? So there are really two problems here. Number one, you're not supposed to upset a person who's very sick, obviously. Right? You want him to be calm, you want him to be happy, you want him to be serene. So there is a fear that if you tell him you've got another week till you die, that could agitate a person. 
That's one aspect. That would counsel, don't tell them. But there's another side of the coin that's very important. And that is, people often have a sense that they're approaching death. They often know it. We, 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 we know this. People have a sense when it's their time to go. And if their family are pretending that everything's great, and they have to pretend that everything's great, they never get a chance to talk about their fears. They never get a chance to kind of talk about the things that are bothering them because everybody is living in this pretend world where nothing is really acknowledged even though everybody really knows what's going on. So what's a little complicated is this. It may very well be that if you simply have an oblivious guy who thinks everything's great, better not to tell him. He thinks everything's great. Okay, let him live with his illusions. But in the reality of modern life, that's often not going to be the situation. And it's a very, very painful thing for a person to die and leave this world without being able to discuss the things that scare them, that bother them. And there can be a lot of comfort in discussing these issues. So. I'm giving you an ambiguous answer, meaning if you ask me the question, should you talk about it or not talk about it, I think in many, many ways it kind of depends on how oblivious the person is. In a totally oblivious person who thinks everything is absolutely great, then maybe the mitzvah is not to talk, not to say it. But as I say, I, I, I have a feeling that in a majority of cases, that's not the situation. And at that point, it's a mitzvah to talk about it. But you talk about it still with hope. In other words, you don't offer false hope. But you say, Hashem is merciful. And then you can even say, and after a person dies, that's not the end of life. There is the soul. It's reborn to something higher. You give a person comfort. Also, let me point out that uh, a person is often inspired to do tshuva as they face death. And you know, maybe uh, you shouldn't deprive a person of the opportunity to kind of make amends for all the things that you have to make amends for. It's, uh, so it's a, very, it's a very, very tricky issue of how do you combine the idea of hope with the idea of honesty. Both of them have to be present because when hope is not connected to honesty, it is seen as a fraud and it doesn't really comfort. On the other hand, honesty can be very brutal, so you have to figure out how to balance it with what's called a reasonable hope. So it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a, of a difficult issue. I, I don't know, I mean, I hope that none of you have had to face this, but it is something that many of us do face at various points, uh, with a parent, with a grandparent, uh, with a relative, sometimes with a friend, uh, and knowing how to comfort somebody and give people chizuk in these difficult moments is very important, and it's not always by a false veneer that everything is wonderful. People know, well, of course, I mean, in a cosmic sense, everything is wonderful. But I mean, in terms of uh, actual life, things are often very, very difficult and very, very painful. And sometimes it's more comforting to acknowledge the pain and talk about it than to simply make believe it does not exist. Right? So that's something to, uh, to be aware of in this, uh, in this particular, in this particular uh, issue. Okay, so uh, now we know uh, the following idea. We know, of course, that pikuach nefesh, saving a life, like I should have added this to the mix, 
is a very, very important principle in Judaism. It is so important that it overrides virtually every single mitzvah of the Torah. When it's a matter of life and death, we desecrate Shabbos, we violate kosher, we violate Yom Kippur. And not all, in fact, I shouldn't even call it a violation because it's not a violation. The same God that says, eat on Yom Kippur when you're healthy, says you're not allowed to eat on Yom Kippur if your life could be compromised. Very, very important. Dr. Yaakov Kamenetsky Paskin, about a man who was told by his doctor to eat on Yom Kippur because of a heart condition. And he was a religious man, and he had fasted on Yom Kippur his whole life since his bar mitzvah. And he said, I'm not going to stop fasting now. And he fasted on Yom Kippur, and he died. And Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky Paskind, that Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky is a great uh, uh, gadol, Paskind, that this man committed suicide, and we do not sit shiva for him uh, because he violated God's will. He thought he was doing a great mitzvah by fasting on Yom Kippur. He was doing a great avera by fasting on Yom Kippur. V'nishmartem shoseichem pikuach nefesh. Pikuach nefesh. That's why when a woman goes into labor, if there's no non-Jewish cab driver, the husband or anybody is allowed and commanded to drive her to the hospital because going into labor, even a routine labor, is treated as a life-threatening condition. Pikuach nefesh. Now, as you know, I'm sure you know this, there's only three commandments for which you have to give your life uh, before you transgress. Uh, that's idol worship, that's the famous case. Someone goes over to you and says, bow down to the idol, become a Christian, or I'll kill you. You have to let yourself die, unfortunately, tragically, as, as Jews have done. Or uh, murder, kill this innocent guy, or I'll kill you. You can kill the guy threatening you. You can do that, because that's a rodef, a pursuer. But you cannot kill an innocent person to save your life. That's murder. Now, the third one is a little tricky. The third one is sexual offense. Now, uh, here I do want to explain something to you. Um, the, the actual case in the Gemara is referring to a man, not a woman. The actual case in the Gemara is somebody goes over to a man and says, rape this woman or I'll kill you. So the man must allow himself to die before he sexually violates another person. That's the Gemara's case. The interesting issue is, how does that apply to a woman? Uh, again, God forbid, this should never be an issue any of, any of you or any other woman ever faces. But let's take the common, not the common, but the, the scenario of rape, where uh, does a woman have to resist unto death before she submits to a rapist. Can a woman submit to a rapist in order to save her life? So it's interesting. A, no, a number of commentaries say she's allowed to submit because they differentiate between what is called an active violation of Gilo Arayos versus passively being violated. And they, they maintain that some opinions say that if the woman is simply being passively violated, so to speak, meaning she is not uh, actively initiating anything, she does not have to give her life. Others differ. But the proof that they bring is from Queen Esther. The, the Queen Esther is, is the proof because Queen Esther had repeated relations with Achashverosh. And the question was, why was she not obligated 
to give up her life. When you say give up your life, what do you mean? Well, no, in other words, uh, let's say, the, well, the case I'm talking about is the rapist is going to kill, kill the woman unless she submits. Oh, I see. Now, whether she could kill herself, that's an interesting, that, that's an interesting question. Uh, does that mean she should kill herself? I'll talk about that later. That, that is a good question. But, but in, in, the, in the context, it's referring to another person killing it. I'm sorry? Wasn't that the whole thing? She also, she wasn't a passive, she wasn't off charge. The question was, did she have given up herself? Well, I understand, but but the point was that uh, every time Achishverosh had relations with her, which right, was not at her, she did not go voluntarily. Right, That's right. So that is why that is why, according to some interpretations, she did not have to give up her life, and that would apply to rapists today. Uh, so, as I say, there's a great deal of machlokas. On the other hand, Maimonides does not bring that distinction. So, the interesting question is, uh, did Maimonides have a different understanding of the Esther story? Yeah, that, that's correct. That's correct. That's correct. So I'm not giving you halacha. Again, I, I hope this will never be relevant in any way. But I'm not giving you halacha lemaisa. But just be aware that a woman's obligation to give her life may not be as strong in this case as a man's obligation to give up his his life. But those are the big three: avodizara, gili arayos, shvichas damim. But for everything else, pikuach nefesh. Right. So you, so you got the structure. Pikuach nefesh overrides everything except for Avodazara, Giliarayas, Shvichus Damin. Now, there is an, an exception Maimonides brings, and that is if the government, the kingdom or the government, has a policy that it wants to take Jews away from the Jewish religion, specific, not anti Semitic laws, anti Torah laws, like the Maccabees, where Antiochus made a law that you're not allowed to keep Shabbos. And the purpose was to take Jews away from Judaism. Then you must give up your life even for the smallest deviation. But it's interesting that even the Holocaust was not classified as that. In other words, for example, it's well known that in the concentration camps, the great rabbis did paskin that the Jews were allowed to eat non-kosher food because it was pikuach nefesh, they would die otherwise. The question you might ask is, but wasn't, weren't the Nazis trying to destroy Judaism? Right, the answer was that the Nazis were not targeting the Torah directly, they were targeting the Jewish people. Even if you weren't religious, they would kill you. So that's, that's what I'm saying. It's not the anti-Semitic laws that trigger this rule. It's specifically anti-Torah laws, and the the example is, of course, the Hashmut, the, the, the Antiochus. That's the classic yeah, example. For the, when the yeah, that would be interesting. Uh, that's that's correct. Uh, so, uh, the communist Russia or the Soviet Union could very well count. That that's correct, and that might explain why Chabad Chabad uh, was proudly keeping all of the Chadorim open. Even though uh, they could, they could, they could be killed. In fact, there's a very famous. You may, you may know this story. There were a lot of Jewish. This goes back to the 1920s, a long time ago. Uh, there were a lot of Jewish communists who were informers. J Jews who would be in the Jewish community, and if they saw any any religious activity, they would report to the uh, to the communists. 
So the Friedecker Rebbe, uh, the Riyadz of Yosef Yitzchak, was conducting a big Purim Suda in the middle of Stalinist Russia, and of course all the shades were down, you know. It was really very, very dangerous, but he was having a big Purim Suda, and he started talking about how evil the communists were, and people were telling him, you know, there are, you know, there are people here who are informers of everything you say. And uh, he literally opened up his shirt, he opened up his shirt, and he says, you can shoot me now. You can kill me now. He says, I'm not going to uh, move away from Hashem's Torah. There was a whole scene. His mother came out, whatever, she was very much, she begged him to stop, and he said, no. He says, he will, he, he says, he will die on the spot for this. So that was an example of, of Messiris Nefesh. Yeah, I'm sorry, someone had a hand up? I, yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the three things that's supposed to die for is serving idols. Yes. Does that mean physically bowing down to the idol or like um, yeah. converting to another religion? Yeah, that's a very excellent question. Uh, it, it does seem, it does seem that uh, although the technical meaning of idol worship is to bow down to an idol or to do some service to it, but it seems that Halacha understands that any conversion to another religion. So I heard like, like maybe last year there was a thing that um, Arabs were making Sharia? Yes, yes, yes. And, that, and then their religion that converts you. Yeah, so here's the thing. There is an old tshuva from the Rambam himself where the Rambam claims that for Islam, the recitation of the Sharia or the recitation of that one line uh, is not considered idolatry because Islam in particular, unlike Christianity, is a monotheistic religion that believes in one God. Uh, now, the truth of the matter is, halachically, you probably do not paskin like the Rambam. I think a person would have to give his life. But, but, but there is a halachic basis based on the, on, the, on the Rambam's letter to Yemen. This is not in the Mishnah Torah, but in the letter to the Yemenite community. He gave them that guidance. Uh, do you remember there was a reporter, this is around 20 years ago, uh, Daniel Pearl, I don't know if you ever heard the name. Uh, Daniel Pearl was a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, I think, in the, in the Middle East. And he was not religious at all. I mean, he, he, he was married to a non-Jewish woman. But he was captured uh, by some terrorists, I think by Al-Qaeda. This is before there was ISIS. And uh, they, actually videoed, they, they actually videoed his execution. It was on YouTube. You could actually see them cutting off his head. I mean, they took it up, but it was on. And like his last words were, they said, uh, say this statement, you know, I, Muhammad is, you know, there's one God and Muhammad is his prophet. That means in their religion that you're converting Yes, yes, yes. And he, said and he said, no, he said, he said, I am a Jew and I am the son of a Jew and I will die as a Jew. And they cut off his head. Now, so, so here's the thing. Uh, Daniel Pearl, you know, was very, very far from keeping the Torah, but he died al-Kiddush Hashem. He died because he proclaimed his faith in Hashem. And he immediately goes to Olam Haba. Talk about the idea. Chazal say a person could get Olam Haba in one second, <laughs> one minute. He got his whole Olam Haba. Now, uh, it's in a, it's, I don't know if you learned this in Tanya yet, but uh, the Alter Rebbe writes it. The Alter Rebbe writes that because every Jew has a godly soul, and in the godly soul, is the love and reverence of God, even if it gets covered up by the animal soul, in moments of great, great stress, 
a godly soul comes out. And that's why he says, that's the Rebbe says, even a Jew that is very, very far from Torah will give up his life. Al-Kiddush Hashem. Mamish writes that. And this is Daniel Pearl, the story of Daniel Pearl. Uh, so he gave up his life rather than recite that statement. But, but as I say, halachically, the Rambam did have a responsa that permitted people to, to say that line. Because he said, number one, it's monotheistic, and number two, there was no act of worship involved. Your, your point, that was your point. Because it just states us words and it's not worship. But as they say, we don't really paskin like that, Rambam. I'm sorry? That's correct. That's what I'm saying. I, I, I don't think we paskin like the Rambam. And there are many that say the Rambam was just giving, after the fact, comfort to a community. He was not telling them that that's what they should have done. Okay. All right. Maybe we'll stop here and uh, wish you all well. And we'll continue next week.